Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, the world's largest Ukrainian communities are, in order, in Ukraine, in Russia, and then in Canada. We'll tell you what Queen's Park is up to on this tragic Russian aggression. Vaccine passports in Ontario are finished, and the Liberals attract a new star candidate. It's Tuesday, March 1st, 2022, so let's get to it. JMM, there are some out there who may be surprised to learn that Canada is home to the third largest Ukrainian community in the world, outside of Ukraine and Russia. There are nearly 400,000 people in Ontario of Ukrainian heritage. So even though the provincial government rarely gets involved in foreign policy, it comes as little surprise that Ontario has made several moves after Russia's appalling invasion of Ukraine last week. The government directed the LCBO to remove all products produced in Russia from its shelves, which may seem like a small move, but the LCBO is actually one of the largest alcohol purchasers in the world. The move came after a request from Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca to do so. What do you think this does? You know, will this move the needle in Moscow? Uh, probably not. Uh, will it matter to Ukrainians here in Ontario? Certainly. Uh, if you look at uh, the LCBO's most recent annual report, uh, if you, th- you they have a, a list of sales by country of origin. Uh, Russia does not even make it into the top 10. It's certainly, you know, less than 3% of total sales. Uh, but this is a big show of solidarity with the Ukrainian community. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the LCBO, it, you know, can be a big purchaser of these things. So, uh, you know, even in the uh, absence of, uh, of purchases, there's, there's a signal there. Premier Doug Ford has said he also wants the federal government to fast track Ukrainian refugees to Ontario. Uh, what else has the province promised? Uh, the province has announced $300,000 in humanitarian aid uh, that is being donated to the Canada-Ukraine Foundation. And I see that the opposition leader, Andrea Horvath, would like the government to go much further than the $300,000. What has she got in mind? Uh, she would like to see that uh, number increase tenfold to $3 million, uh, again, through the Canada-Ukraine Foundation. Uh, she is also asking the government to match all donations made by Ontarians uh, and has uh, <laughs> left the door open to more. She's saying that should just be the beginning of where Ontario goes next. Hmm. I'm not sure how much of people's backgrounds make a difference here, but let's put this on the record. Uh, Andrea Horvath's background is uh, Slovakian. Slovakia, of course, shares a border with Ukraine. So it's possible that Horvath's own family history is intertwined with the Eastern European politics of the old Soviet Union. In addition, the Minister of Finance, Peter Bethlen-Falvey, comes from a Hungarian background, and Hungary shares a border with Ukraine as well. So it's, uh, oh, I don't know, I guess it's interesting to consider how much personal family history goes into some of these decisions. Russia, of course, is one of the world's largest exporters of oil and gas. How have other Canadian politics got mixed up in that? Uh, well, the uh, Ford government has asked the uh, the U.S. government, the, uh, the Joe Biden White House, to reverse its decision on the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, that's a, a pipeline that would uh, ship uh, oil from uh, Alberta to 
uh, uh, refineries in the U.S. It was canceled early in the Biden administration. The premier referred to this as a way to uh, avoid importing uh, dirty oil from Russia. Obviously, I think uh, given recent events, uh, uh, Russian oil imports uh, <laughs> have more dirt than they used to on them. Uh, we have also seen Canadian oil producers argue for a return to the idea of the Energy East pipeline, which would have carried oil uh, across Canada from Alberta to refineries in eastern Canada. Uh, that was an idea that was uh, scuttled largely in the face of opposition in Quebec. No sign of that changing anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Now, with all of this as a backdrop, on Sunday, the Toronto branch of the Canadian-Ukrainian Congress organized a massive rally in Ontario's capital city, and thousands of people did turn out to Young and Dundas Square to show their support. Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, whose Ukrainian mother helped draft that country's constitution, she was there. As was TVO producer Harrison Lohman, who joins us now. Harrison, you joined us a few weeks ago talking about the trucker convoy. You were out at Young Dundas Square this past weekend. So if you would, just describe the scene for us. I feel like you're a roving reporter uh, now, guys. Senior protest correspondent. <laughs> yes, exactly. So there was about, organizers say, 30,000 people there. And they insist that it was the largest gathering of Ukrainians and friends in Canadian history. As you said, they marched from Young Dundas Square to Nathan Phillips Square. It was eerily quiet, guys, but for chanting, calling Putin a very bad word, which I won't say on this uh this amazing podcast here. Uh, the Ukrainian national anthem was sung, and, and that was really um, sort of touching. And yellow and blue smoke bombs were going off, um, and, and a fair amount of signs uh, likening Putin to Hitler, as well as flags galore, a sea of flags, trying to make out what they were, uh, Ukraine, Taiwan, Hong Kong, freedom flags, Tibet, Estonia, Britain, Azerbaijan. So you get the, the deal. There was a lot of flags from many different countries, uh, people there showing their support. Uh, Harrison, you spoke with a number of people who attended that protest. Uh, what did they tell you? Two people I spoke to, uh, Steve and John Michael, were fighting back tears when they talked to me. Um, it, it gave me this feeling that this isn't just, you know, this unknown um, conflict taking uh, place uh, overseas. It's something that is a current war happening in real time. It's devastating and it's affecting the lives of Canadians who are standing in that square next to me. I, I spoke to a woman named Irina who had her kids there all wearing signs. She was born and raised in Ukraine. She moved here when she was 11. She talked about being shocked being in disbelief. Um, she has a friend who's currently traveling to go fight in Ukraine right now. Her best friend just escaped after hours and hours of traveling on the road. She said if she didn't have kids, she'd probably be headed there herself. I'm shocked. It's I'm in disbelief and I just feel helpless being over here. And, you know, if I didn't have small kids, I'd probably be going over there myself. Um, Steve, you mentioned Hungary um, do, with Minister Bethan Falvi, his family ties there. Spoke to a Hungarian family. People from the former Soviet Union were there. Um, an elderly mother named Susan. Um, she remembered being up against Russian tanks. Um, she said this was all too similar. We didn't have an army. We waited for help from the West. Our calls went unanswered. My sister died. My father was sent away to the camps. Um, also spoke most interestingly to a woman named Maria, who is Russian. She was there with other Russians. Her ex-husband is Ukrainian, father from uh, Ukraine, mother from Russia. And she spoke about the cultural overlap that exists. 
She says that we and the Ukrainians have a lot in common. Our languages are just a few words apart. And um, Russians back home, including her family in St. Petersburg, are getting a steady diet of misinformation. The government saying there's nothing to see here. Listen, you have to understand, even though things really change, they really haven't. It's another form of the Iron Curtain. Everything's still pretty much is the same, right? It's just nothing but corruption. People can't not be corrupt. They talk about Russia still the same because the people are corrupt. Well, the people are never given a chance to be anything but corrupt. They could never have the government just not standing on their throat to just be and flourish as a people and really see where they would go as a people. Um, and just finally, guys, what did they want? Uh, some calling for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Uh, White House spokesperson saying that would essentially mean the U.S. military would be shooting down Russian planes. Um, it would kind of be like a declaration of war against Russia. So they're not big fans of that proposal. Um, they want money sent over to help Ukrainians. And just finally, lots of cheers going out when uh, organizers called for the Russian ambassador to, to Canada to be expelled. That's something that the interim federal conservative party leader wants. So... Um, lots of different calls for help, and we'll actually we'll have to see how many of them are answered. Thanks for that, Harrison. Appreciate you joining us again. Okay, thanks, guys. Be safe. Okay, JMM. Let's put the accent now back onto Queens Park and uh, some labor law news that was made on Monday. Uh, fill us in on that in terms of what the government had to announce. So the government had been hinting that a few changes were coming to labor law for a while now, and the bill is finally being introduced to the House, and uh, it is called the Working for Workers Act 2, uh, because there was already a Working for Workers Act 1. Um, but the announcement on Monday was that the government is going to require uh, gig economy companies like Uber or other uh, ride-sharing and delivery companies to pay uh, the province's minimum wage of $15 an hour. But there's a pretty big asterisk attached. Uh, it's only going to count towards the time they are actively working on those apps. Actively working. What exactly does that mean? It means that workers will only be paid the minimum wage for the time they are directly carrying a passenger or delivering a meal. Uh, they won't be paid for the time between fares. Uh, one worker's advocate I, I spoke with compared it to paying a bartender only for the time he's directly pouring drinks and not for all the rest of his shift. So, you know, this announcement is going to be disappointing for some. Uh, and it's it's actually not even clear it's going to cost these companies anything more than what they are already paying workers. So for those who want to dismiss it as pure smoke and mirrors before an election period just to cozy up to employees, uh, is that a fair criticism? You know, not entirely. There is there's some interesting stuff uh, in the uh, the legislation, at least based on on what we uh, saw from the releases uh, from the government. Uh, there's the minimum wage protections, of course, uh, but there's also some stuff about uh, spelling out more uh, rights for, uh, for example, you know, if a worker is removed from uh, uh, Uber or Lyft or or other app, uh, and how they can defend their their employment rights in on. Ontario. This is just a weird one that I have to get into because it, it, I find it kind of kind of funny, frankly. Um, it, it's kind of crazy, but until 2019, Uber insisted that people who used its app in Canada couldn't actually take it to court in this country if they had a dispute. They had to file an arbitration claim in the Netherlands, of all things. Um, now, Ontario's highest court in 2019 invalidated that part of Uber's policy. Uh, so we're going to have to see the details of uh, Ontario's new law uh, and, you know, see how the, the this text of this new law affects that prior decision. Uh, but, you know, as you might guess, as we record this, uh, the text of the bill isn't yet available. So we, we don't know 
precisely the, the details. And as they say, the devil is in those details, isn't yes, it? Yes, indeed. Yeah. All right, let's do our COVID update now. As of today, businesses are no longer required to request proof of vaccination. However, they do have the option to keep that rule in place if they choose to, and some of them are. Uh, the Review Cinema, for example, it's a small independent movie theater in the West End of Toronto. Uh, they announced they would be keeping their vaccine requirement in place until April 4th because some people may have bought advanced tickets to shows under the assumption that proof of vaccination would be required. There are other businesses who are following in their footsteps. Uh, JMM, any word on whether the government is considering removing vaccination requirements beyond businesses? I'm thinking, for example, here, long-term care homes. Uh, Paul Calandra, the Minister of Long-Term Care, uh, said the government is still consulting with Chief Medical Officer of Health, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, to determine whether or if the vaccine mandate in long-term care should be relaxed. They they don't have a decision on that yet. Uh, it, you know, it's worth mentioning that in some other areas, uh, places like hospitals, you know, it, that was never a government-imposed vaccine mandate to begin with. That was the result of employers making those decisions. So the government isn't in a position to rescind those decisions now either. Uh, Dr. Moore did say in his briefing last week that he supports immunization policies, especially for new hires, where it's you know easier as a matter of employment to do so. Uh, but he doesn't expect the government to require it as an ongoing matter. I want to ask you about mask mandates here in Ontario. But before I do, can I tell you a little story? Yes. I just got back from a week off in Florida. And I shouldn't say week off because it was kind of a working vacation, but it was a working vacation in the sun. So that's a nice thing. And I took my daughter to a Florida Panthers hockey game. So I guess about 15,000 people in the arena. Uh, how many do you think were wearing masks during the course of the game? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go with a, a round number of nearly zero. <laughs> well, my daughter and I were there, so there were at least two of us. Okay. But I don't know that there were many beyond that. And in fact, the reason I'm bringing this up is because there was a, they had a guy, an usher, walk around with a sign saying, please keep your mask on. And even he was not wearing a mask. <laughs> <laughs> so this is how carefully people in Florida at this Florida Panthers game were following the mask mandates. Uh, actually, truth be told, uh, th there were signs on public transit buses, for example, saying no mask, no service. And, and there were there are other restaurants, for example, where you had to have your mask on to go in. Uh, but for the most part, um, COVID doesn't exist in Florida. It's a very interesting thing. Anyway, mask mandates here. What's the story now? Dr. Kieran Moore, again, uh, did say at his uh, briefing last week that he expects them to be removed uh, simultaneously across different sectors rather than, you know, bits and pieces at a time. Uh, that would include schools or it might include schools. Uh, we, we can note here that uh, Brampton mayor and former PC party leader Patrick Brown has been on a, a bit of a tear in uh, the last week or so, asking for the mask mandate in schools to be removed. Uh, Dr. Moore did say that he would expect there to be exceptions for certain high-risk settings like hospitals and potentially mass transit, places where social distancing just isn't possible. All right, let's do another angle on this COVID story. And that is, we have talked a number of times on this podcast in the past about the surgical backlog in Ontario hospitals, because of course, they had to pivot to treat COVID-19 patients and a lot of other things therefore didn't get treated. And the Financial Accountability Officer of Ontario has estimated that there is a $1.3 billion backlog in services such as elective surgeries and diagnostic tests and the like. Opposition leader Andrea Horvath has weighed in on this. What did she have to say last week? 
The NDP uh, worked to to force a vote in the legislature on Monday, uh, tackling that backlog head on. Uh, they wanted uh, 1.3 billion dollars flowing to to help hospitals eliminate that backlog. You know, we've talked about this uh, at length on this podcast before about you know how difficult uh, that backlog is going to be to address. Uh, Horvath introduced Kathy Mott of Ingersoll to join her online last Friday to share her story, uh, which is one of living in pain, uh, waiting for for a, a hip replacement surgery and a hysterectomy. Uh, Ingersoll is a, a rural community. Uh, the, the operating room hours are rather restricted. Uh, so getting her procedures is simply uh, taking way too long. And how has this affected her life, this delay? <laughs> Uh, Mott's life has been uh, totally upended by this wait. Uh, you know, a former town councillor, uh, Mott, said that she would consider running again uh, if she had a new hip with which she could hit the hustings. Hmm. Well, uh, speaking of elections, we are less than 100 days until, is it less than 100 days or fewer than 100 days? Uh, the grammar nerd in me wants to say it's fewer than 100 days, but fewer. I'm not... Fewer? Okay, good. I'm glad we... If we could resolve this, we can resolve anything. I mean, my grammar is terrible, so (laughs) pity my (laughs) editors. I'm I'm listening to you? Oh my gosh, okay. Well, whatever it is, uh, it's a little more than three months. Why don't we say that until the next Ontario election, which according to our fixed election date law will be held June 2nd. And uh, well, the Liberals were pretty excited last week to announce a new star candidate jumping into the fray for them. Jeff Lehman, very popular mayor of Barrie, will seek the Liberal nomination in the riding of Barrie, Springwater, Oro, Medante. JMM, how do you think that changes the state of play in that part of the province? Well, the most notable thing to say is that, you know, the incumbent in that riding is a conservative and he's not exactly a no-name. It's the Attorney General, Doug Downey. Uh, So, you know, a a very interesting contest to watch there between uh, a very powerful, you know, cabinet minister in Doug Ford's government and uh, a very popular mayor. Uh, That riding was only created in the last election, in the 2018 election. So we we don't have a a very clear history uh, to draw upon uh, other than that one contest. Uh, however, Downey did win it last time by almost 8,000 votes. But by the same token, you know, the Liberals held the riding of Barry before that and, you know, have, have traditionally done, uh, at least made that riding competitive. So uh, it will be, or made the old riding of Barry, I should say, competitive. So, uh, you know, it, it will be one to watch, certainly. Yeah, I always figure we have to take the 2018 results with a bit of a grain of salt when we consider Uh, you know, how predictive they are for what's going to happen next time. You know, the Liberals came third. They had a historically bad finish last time. So it may not be all that helpful to helping us understand what might happen this time. Having said that, Jeff Lehman, the former mayor, or soon-to-be former mayor, got 91% of the vote in the last municipal election in 2018 in the mayor's race. Uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but those are Saddam Hussein-like numbers, aren't they? <laughs> right. You sort of wonder who, who was the sucker who volunteered to run against him. Uh, yeah, and in, in 2014, it wasn't much better. He got 92% of the vote there. Hmm. Uh, so again, you know, this is going to be a really fascinating contest to watch um, because, you know, voters, they also vote differently in uh, provincial versus municipal elections. Uh, you know, uh, I suspect Lehman will be quite competitive in that riding. I don't think he's going to get 90 percent again (laughs) but uh you know it will be keeping an eye on that one for sure right on now jmm this is not the ab poly podcast by meaning we don't cover alberta politics here but something did happen last week in the province of alberta that we thought our listeners might find fascinating what was it well they introduced their budget and what happened 
Well, the province of Alberta went from an $18.2 billion deficit a year ago to a $500 million surplus this year. Clearly, we have found the solution to Ontario's balancing its books as well. You want to care to share the secret? Uh, well, it's quite simple if you can manage it, Steve. Uh, Ontario needs to strike oil. <laughs> uh, Alberta's oil revenues went through the roof. Uh, anybody who's had to fill up a tank of gasoline knows where, where gasoline prices are these days. Uh, they had the highest revenues ever for that province, uh, allowing them to go from uh, sky-high deficits to a surplus in one year. Uh, that is what happens uh, when oil goes from $70 a barrel to $90 a barrel. So it's pretty simple. We just have to strike oil in the province of Ontario, right? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, whatever happened in Alberta millions of years ago, unfortunately, did not happen in the geology here in Ontario. So I'm afraid uh, we don't have very much oil here. Um, people might not know that commercial oil production actually has a very long history in Ontario, uh, heavily concentrated in the southwest. Uh, and to this day, we still produce a few hundred barrels of oil every day. Um, that is obviously nothing compared to the millions of barrels Alberta produces produces uh, for global markets daily. Uh, so we may have to find other ways to balance those books. Uh, and we will see how Finance Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey does on that score uh, in the weeks ahead when he brings uh, brings in Ontario's budget. Right. There's a reason that town's called Petrolia, right? In southwestern yes, Ontario? exactly. <laughs> All started there for us. But uh, sadly, not millions, not thousands, just hundreds of barrels. Well, okay. Let, let's also, while we're on the subject of budget making here, um, touch on this because there was an unusual development on that front last week. The government has decided to give itself more time to bring in the budget. How come? So the the government brought in a rule in the 2019 budget that uh, was supposed to force the premier and finance minister to bring in a budget before April 1st, before the start of the fiscal year, uh, every single year, or they would have to pay a financial penalty. Uh, they have done that precisely once in four years. <laughs> um, and it looks like they will not do it again because they've now extended the, their deadline to April 30th. Um, so after <laughs> the start of the fiscal year. Um, the government house leader, Paul Calandra, uh, we mentioned him earlier wearing his Ministry of Long-Term Care hat. Now we're talking about him as the government house leader. Um, he said at Queen's Park last week that the government wants to present the legislature and voters with the most up-to-date economic information they can, uh, and the government believes they need to wait until after April 1st to do that. I'm sure that's absolutely 110% true. Um, or maybe not. Do we believe that? <laughs> I mean, it could be true. Um, you know, you, but you only need to look at a calendar to realize that pushing the budget uh, later in the spring brings it closer to the start of the election campaign. Uh, you know, you, you can sort of work back from June 2nd. It's supposed to be, I think, was it five Thursdays back from June 2nd or something is, is the way the, the language of the law is written. Um, but effectively, the election season is going to be starting in early May. If they push the budget later into April... You know, the government would be very, very happy if the last few weeks before the start of the formal writ period are filled with headlines all about the spending promises that they intend to bring to voters. Uh, and that's what that budget is going to be chock full of is spending promises and maybe a tax cut somewhere. Um, you know, there's a very, very long history to this. The, the, the Tories are not breaking any new ground here. Um, in 1999, uh, the government of Mike Harris prorogued the spring sitting of the legislature so that they could get a throne speech, then did a budget speech weeks later. And then they didn't even bother passing the budget. They just dissolved the legislature and went 
straight to an election campaign immediately after announcing the budget speech. Uh, that is technically still a possibility this year. Um, you know, maybe we will have to do a segment in a future episode about, you know, what happens if the province needs to keep running when there's no budget passed. Oh, that sounds like one right up. That is right in McGrath's wheelhouse. That kind of a show, I can tell. <laughs> but you know what? I heard Doug Ford saying at his news conference yesterday, this is on Monday of this week, saying that uh, they missed their target, their deadline for getting the budget in on time one year. And he said, I had to pay back $10,000 to the treasury of my salary in order to uh, pay the fine for being late. So for those people out there who say, oh, yeah, when do they, you know, they put all these targets in there that they have to meet or else they're going to be fined. But I bet they never pay the fines. Well, the premier said he paid $10,000. I assume that's true. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, and we should also say that the reason why they missed their deadline in 2020 was because of a little thing called COVID-19 that you might have heard about. And it kind of blew everybody's uh, budget planning up. <laughs> indeed. Indeed, it did. All right. We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week. And we'll have that immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback. Good, bad or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. We also remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly dash newsletter. Uh, this week, our subject, of course, is Ukraine and what the province can do uh, on a subject of international interest. Here now, my quote of the week, and uh, I'm going to go for a bit of a twofer here because there were strong speeches in the Ontario legislature last week in support of Ukraine. So here are Premier Doug Ford and opposition leader Andrea Horvath. Canada shall never waver in standing against tyranny. Canada shall never waver in the support of Ukraine. As Putin's aggression lights up the skies of Kiev, They will see the strength of the Ukrainian people emerge from the darkness. We must ensure that your Ukrainian flag flies high above the skyline. We will always stand in solidarity with the people of Ukraine's efforts to strengthen their democracy and institutions. And we will always reject the path of aggression, the path of stoking the flames of division and imperialism for political gain. The Premier and the opposition leader united in their condemnation against Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And my quote of the week is from Labour Minister Monty McNaughton speaking on the government's new labour law on Monday. We'll be the first place uh, in North America to do this and I expect um, other jurisdictions across uh, North America to follow Ontario's lead but we're going to ensure that we have uh, benefits uh, for workers that don't have them today uh, including gig workers. That's Labour Minister Monty McNaughton speaking on Monday. And that is this week's episode of the On Poly Podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs>